the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. It's a new month, but it's the same show. <laughs> Just say it. Oh, <laughs> In case you're expecting something new for November. Really funny. <laughs> that's all. Well, welcome to the ride home. Welcome. I'm Kathy Emmons, I'm John, John Hall, Hall across hey. the table, and I'm wearing uh, no costume today. Neither slides. Very nice. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Listen, yeah. wait. I want to say something. I looked at those photos you posted on Facebook. Man, I look like such a curmudgeon. I am not a curmudgeon. Well, I'm no not. kidding. I'm not. Mm-hmm. But man, I look at those photos and go, that's a bad take on you, yeah, but John Yeah, th- but there was some evolution happening. <laughs> if you I guess. If you heard our, our uh, show yesterday, man. many people were like, I, I, I was trying to picture the octopus outfit. Mm-hmm. Well, you know mm-hmm. what? You can see it online. But you are the best one from the, your party last night. Oh, yes, where you can see the tentacles. Yes. Yeah, and perhaps I should put that I on our page. I think you should. So it's, you a, can... it's a better view. It's just like any octopus or squid. When they are out of the water, they're not at their best. <laughs> right, right. You do need the water to show them You off. Really, do. really do. So it was a good day for you yesterday, yeah. Halloween party. I thought we had a big Halloween party. Mm-hmm. And um, the only thing that I would say is never again am I doing that on actual Halloween. <laughs> right. Because it's too much on a work day. Too much going on. So the Saturday before Halloween Be is when the party will happen. Yeah. Because last night was just crazy. Maybe I'll get invited. You were invited. I told you you could come. No, I when Of course I Yesterday you told me. I Well, yeah. Well, I, I had plans <laughs> by that point. I mean, it was an but afterthought. I meant to I got, earlier. No, no, here, hey, what are you doing tonight? I'm having a party. Oh, well, you can come. <laughs> I mean, talk about a throwaway invite. Well, I mean, that... what the heck was that all about? I thought we were buddies. Well, at least you got an invite. Oh, 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 oh. Boy, you guys. Mm-hmm. I was... We're just your work friends, Lex. Just your work friends. We're not real friends. That's... No, it's just, just really. That's all. That's there is a true. delineation. That's fine. There's... No, but listen, my only, See, my, only, uh, my only missive was, <laughs> I'm just trying to take my glasses off and they're not on. You Have right. you ever done that? Oh, of course. Uh, was your homemade SpaghettiOs. Oh, which, by the way, I made, I quadrupled the recipe. Mm-hmm. And they were all gone. And they're all gone. Of course they were. We had 30 people there. Yeah, there were a lot of people. Right. We had two other soups, too. We had butternut squash, Mm -hmm. and we had lemon rosemary, white bean lemon and rosemary, which was, my daughter made that. What a delicious soup. What is it again? White bean, lemon, and rosemary. Man, that's going on. It was good. That sounds excellent. It was really good, really unusual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really loved it. Did you have candy? I didn't have any candy. You you Mm -hmm. didn't eat any candy at all? No. Wait, Lex. Lex came in with a bucket. You see, she had like all this left. I know. Candy. I, I trick or treated at her office door. Oh, you did. Okay, good. All right. Good. Uh, so she I knocked some... at my door and everything. Mm-hmm. You know what, though? I made gingerbread last night. She, would you stop? And I mean, it was delicious. I mean, I didn't make it last night. I made it the night before. I mean, for the two last of you. night. Homemade spaghettios, gingerbread. 
You got it going on, girl. It was good. What the heck? It was good. Very anyway, nice. we have a terrific show coming up. We do. In the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk to Frederica Matthews Green. She is our friend from the Orthodox Church. She always opens my eyes mm-hmm. into something that I didn't get before. This is this a is, stumbling This is going to be a tough one. This is a big one. Because today we're talking about Mary. And I don't get, I mean... <laughs> I don't get it. People are so opposed to Mary. I grew People up with Mary. Propo- I know, but you grew up Catholic. And I mean, I'm, we're I not love a, Mary. We're not opposed to Mary. We just feel like you guys, it feels you like, know, kind of like over-treat her. I mean, I really, I, I, it feels like anytime you mention me, like I would never mention Mary in mixed company. Like Because like people get really hot about I it. I mean, all of a sudden, like, like the burning torches come out. Right. Oh, la, la, la. People are like so upset immediately. Mm-hmm. So I do look forward to Frederica with the talk about Mary. <laughs> and uh, also at 535, I'll have a uh, public confession to make. <laughs> Just the confession of how you treat I'm your friends on you. Halloween. I, I didn't... Just saying. See, no. All right. No big deal. Okay, listen. Uh, the world continues to revolve, yes, does it, it does. not? So without further ado, Kath, please, the news stories, give us the top four at four. For Wednesday, the 1st of November. Mm. What? 2023. Number one. Israel said it targeted Hamas in Jabalia today with a strike that hit the refugee camp in the Gaza neighborhood. Um, yesterday, a Hamas commander was killed, according to the Israeli military, as well as causing widespread casualties and damage. Uh, Gaza's border with Egypt, though, opened for the first time in the war for injured Palestinians and others to cross. More than 100 foreigners, according to today's Wall Street Journal, have crossed into Egypt, officials said, with Americans among them. Um, Hamas said seven hostages, including three foreign passport holders, were killed in Israel's strike on the Jabalia refugee camp. About 240 people have been taken hostage, according to Israeli officials. Number two, a Cornell University student charged with making threats against Jewish students on campus, according to federal charges filed by the Justice Department. Patrick Dye, a junior at Cornell, charged with making explicit threats against Jewish men, women, and babies, which allegedly included threats of rape and murder. According to the Department of Justice, Dye allegedly threatened to, quote, bring an assault rifle to campus and shoot Jews. Attorney General Merrick Garland said today that the Justice Department has no tolerance for violence or unlawful threats of violence fueled by anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Over the weekend, numerous threats to the Jewish community at Cornell were posted on a website unaffiliated with the university. That's from ABC News. Man, is that scary? It's unbelievable. Like, I'm reading this, and I can't believe I'm reading it. Number three, a former Delta co-pilot facing federal charges for allegedly threatening to shoot a flight captain who, during a trip last year, tried to divert their plane because a passenger was experiencing a medical emergency. The former pilot, identified as Jonathan Dunn, was indicted by a Utah grand jury in October just a few weeks ago for allegedly using a dangerous weapon to assault and intimidate an aircraft crew member. New details that came to light this week, and I'm reading here from a long article in the CBS, on CBSNews.com, have raised questions about whether commercial airline pilots are allowed to carry loaded guns aboard a flight. 
Pilots can do it in some instances. Dunn was part of a federal flight deck officer program which authorizes flight crew members to use firearms to defend against an attack of violence, right, which sounds like a really good thing. For some reason, in this instance, it ended up being a bad thing because the co-pilot was threatening the pilot with a loaded gun. Talk about blowing up your career. I mean, it's just... The incident involving Dunn took place during a Delta air flight last August of 2022 when Dunn, the co-pilot, had a disagreement during the flight over whether to potentially change course due to a medical event. And Dunn told the captain that he would be shot multiple times if the captain diverted the flight. Mm. I shouldn't say he. I don't know if it was a he or she, the captain. They. Number four. A group of 40 rabbis and cantors from the Pittsburgh region are denouncing recent votes by U.S. Representative Summer Lee, Democrat from Swissvale, in connection with the Israel-Hamas war. Rabbi Dan Fellman of Temple Sinai in Squirrel Hill organized an open letter and said its signatories represent a broad swath of Jewish religious leaders from the region, conservative, orthodox, and reform. A spokesperson for Lee said the congresswoman planned to meet with the rabbis and cantors to respond to the letters. Mm-hmm. And that is your top four at four. Well, you get what you vote for. I, right? That's exactly what I right? say. I mean, you, you knew going in her progressive politics and uh, the anti-Israel sentiment. Yep. So there's no doubt about that. The signers include two survivors of the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, uh, Jeffrey Myers and Jonathan Perlman. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> good for the the rabbis and for the entire Jewish community to stand up to that because, you know, no place for hate. Well, exactly. You can say exactly what exactly. that is. You know, Fellman said it's very rare to have a, our whole group united on something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we all believe that Israel was attacked by terrorists and the world needs to respond to that. And so does Summer League. I'm into that. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Come back and reset. Our, our next guest, uh, our first guest, Dorothy Littell Greco, suffering through a tragedy in her family, but still she finds time to find beauty in the midst of this. Stay tuned. Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's Word FM. Life is hard. I mean, life can be absolutely brutal. And sometimes when it starts, it comes in waves. Yep. Right? Wave after wave of what you seem trouble, despair, heartache, all that. Uh, that's a whole other story. Dorothy Littell Greco is with us. She's a writer, photographer. She lives outside of Boston. She's the author of Making Marriage and most recently, Marriage in the Middle. Dorothy, welcome back to the show. How are you? Well, it's been a tough couple weeks, but I'm very glad to be with you and uh, to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you, Dorothy. Yeah, so, Dorothy, I don't know how much you want to share about what's actually going on with your family, but I think suffice to say that all of us know, just like John said, that when troubles come, um, sometimes they come in packs. That is absolutely true, yeah, and it's not really my story to share right now, but to say that um, there's just been some really big, really sad surprises uh, going on. And then in the midst of that, I had a, an abnormal EKG and an abnormal colonoscopy. Oh, and, gosh. And there's, you know, a war raging in the Middle East, and there's still war going on in Ukraine. And then there were those killings in Lewiston. So it has felt like an overwhelming month. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. I'm, I'm with you all the way, Dorothy. Myself, uh, I'm, I'm sort of following along going, this has happened, this has happened, this has happened. So in the midst of all that turmoil, which sometimes can seem never ending, do you have a cure? I certainly don't have a cure, but I have something that I turn to that I think helps 
to get me through. And that's beauty. Um, You know, as you mentioned, I work as a photographer. So I'm often, when I feel so overwhelmed and so heavy burdened by all the difficulty and pain in the world, I often go out with my camera and take pictures of things that are beautiful. Um, You know, for other people, obviously, that might not be the thing for them. But having the capacity to see something that's beautiful, dahlias, um, I don't know if you're familiar Mm, with those flowers, but this this is dahlia season. It's just coming to an end. And they are so spectacular and so marvelous that just spending five minutes looking at them can help me feel like, Mm. okay, I'm going to make it through. This is going to be all right. Mm, Okay, so how does that work? What's the mechanism that, (laughs) how can a flower help with the kinds of stuff that you're facing? Yeah, I know. It doesn't really make sense, does it? No, it Um, does. No. (laughs) Well, it doesn't make sense, but I... Well, I would just say this. Uh, to me, as Dorothy is a photographer, uh, and I was a photographer when I was a, like a 15-year-old, you develop a sense of, of awareness of the things around you that maybe, and I'll put this in quotes, that would regular people miss. Dorothy, is that, is that fair? I think that is true. I think that I'm trained to see things. And when I'm in a space where I feel sad, where I feel discouraged or overwhelmed, taking myself out of that difficult space and focusing on something that's beautiful. And it doesn't have to be a flower. It could be a baby. Um, you know, when you make eye contact with a baby and they mm-hmm. smile at you, there's something about that that is transcendent. Walking along the ocean is transcendent for me. And what I mean by that, it, it lifts me up mm-hmm. and out of my current mm-hmm. um, mindset, the current situation, and says there's something bigger, there's something greater, and don't get lost in all the pain and all the difficulty. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I mean, and that is something that you trained yourself to do, Dorothy, right? It wasn't as though it just fell upon you. You saw something, and over years and time, you were able to sort of engage yourself in a deeper sense of beauty. I think that's true. I mean, ever since I was a child, I've been out in nature, and in reality, I think we've talked about this on the show earlier, it's through nature that I really came to God. It was that sense of awe, that sense of transcendence that said to me, there's, there's something more. And beauty does that. You know, Lewis talks about it so eloquently, both in um, The Weight of Glory and Surprised by Joy, as of beauty being like a threshold that we can step across and enter into something that's just bigger and grander and greater. Yeah. And I, I think about this often. I remember years ago, you know, like I said, I made an early reference to being a kid and being obsessed with photography. Now, this was, you know, in the 70s with single lens reflex and mm-hmm, film. Mm-hmm. And it was a little more difficult than just, you know, pointing your iPhone at something and going, I just yeah. took a picture, right? So you had to sort right. of train your eye. And I remember like looking at, you know, the masters of photography from the beginning of photography forward. And what if, uh, one time I read this, that there you could spend a lifetime photographing the square mile around your house and still have plenty of things of beauty left over because beauty surrounds us. We just choose in many ways to ignore it. We can't necessarily see it. I think that that's true. We have to take time. We have to slow down and we have to prioritize um, seeing it. And to me, it goes alongside of gratitude because what happens for me is when I, immerse myself in a place that's beautiful or even just a tiny little vignette, you know, that's two by two on the ground. There's, it awakens something in me. And oftentimes 
that leads me to being grateful. So when I can see something beautiful and then say, God, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you for, for thinking of this. Thank you for making this beautiful space. That in and of itself is like a balm for the, the wounds that I have. So that balm, I mean, it's just, it. you think that when you're going through pain like that, that there is no balm for it. And then it it comes upon that balm is surprising to me when I find it. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it was like that for you when you first kind of lighted on dahlias or photography or something like that for you. Yeah. And I don't I'd be curious to hear what it is for you. For some people, it's music. Right. Is that, you know, listening to a Bach concerto or Mozart. It's something that just awakens in us um, desire. And the desire is for something that allows us to feel more alive and gives us hope. Um, so it's, it's, it's deeply spiritual, but, it, but I don't think that somebody has to be like a person of faith to experience this. I don't think so either. To, uh, Dorothy, for me, I, this is going to sound so dorky, but I just have to be honest about who I am. I love <laughs> to go into museums. I Mm -hmm. love to go into museums because, first of all, they are beautiful. But second of all, they're also very orderly. Mm -hmm. And there's so much time that was put into how things are laid out and displayed Mm -hmm. and whatever that it just makes me feel like everything's going to be okay. Right. The curators. Yeah. It just seems – it's just uh, the the arrangement of it all and the order of it all is just – it's just really calming to me. Yes, that makes total sense, right? Because order is the opposite of chaos. Chaos just undoes us. Right. Okay, so then in the midst of despair, uh, by engaging in beauty, it gives you hope, right? That's that's the thread. Because everybody, we all need deep and strong hope in our lives. Otherwise, life isn't worth living. Yeah, and sometimes it can feel like hope is really out of reach. I mean, honestly, the past month, six weeks have really, I have had to work very hard to find hope. Um, In and of myself, I think that I would have just checked out. I would have gained about 15 pounds, no joke, um, and I would not have been at all productive. But So the choice to continue the day, so I was at the gym, like in the middle of this um, Hamas-Israel war, and I don't usually watch the news because it's just too much for me as a highly sensitive person. But it was on the screen directly in front of the elliptical that I was on. And I just lost it. Mm. I started crying. um, And when I left, I thought, you know, I've got to go home and put the kayak on my car and go out onto a lake. And that's what I did. I just went out to the lake and I wept. But the Mm. beauty that was around me somehow was comforting to me and allowed me to move through the pain and through the grief into a space of peace. That sounds very wise. Yeah, right, it does. really does. I mean, when you think about where we are, you know, mental health crisis and addiction mm-hmm. and just despair. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, of course, the screen drives a lot of that, and we lose the screen and we return back to nature. Not to say that we worship nature in place of God, but the, right. I mean, the beauty is everything. It really is. Yeah, and the beauty should again point us back to God, right? Because if He's the originator of the beauty then that means that as we look at it and gaze into it, we should be able to understand God more fully, which then hopefully will lead us to a sense of gratitude and hope. Yeah, you're so right about that. Dorothy, uh, we, we are, 
are going to pray for your family and uh, oh, all this, you. all that you guys are facing. But want to thank you for giving us a little window into how uh, you're managing and staying well. Thank you. It's always good to have a conversation with you. I feel better already. Good. Good. Us too. Good. Good. Us too. Uh, check out the the latest work by Dorothy Littell Greco. It's called Marriage in the Middle: Embracing Midlife Surprises, Challenging, and Joys. No, Midlife Challenges and Joys. Don't you hate to mispronounce words? <laughs> yes, very much. Very much so. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, there's so many. And when you mispronounce a word, especially like in public, you feel like a fool. Right. Or just, you know, supremely uneducated. Like, right. oh, there's that idiot guy. Right. He pronounced uh, uh, gnocchi <laughs> as nuki. <laughs> right. right. I mean, and everybody knows it. Right. Or at least it feels that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so listen to this. This is uh, from last week's Wall Street Journal. The next time you're Googling how to correctly pronounce potable. Or potable. Cachet. Mm-hmm. Macabre. 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 Or gnocchi. Mm-hmm. Or gauging whether the U is silent in gauge, you can be assured of two things. You're not the only one wary of butchering words. And waiting near the top of your search results will be Julian Mikel. Oh. Mikel, age 43, makes very short YouTube videos that sound out English words. Oh, okay. I've done, I have, I, I know who this is. Really? Well, he's produced 12,000 of them this year alone. I didn't know, I know this guy. Really? Mikel, age 43, makes short YouTube videos that sound out English words, much like many other online instructors. But his work is in the genre. Distinguished by a curious feature, his conspicuously French, French accent. accent. Yes. Mon Dieu. Uh-huh. That's right. America's go-to expert for English pronunciation is a Frenchman. Mikel, pronounced M-E-E-K-E-L-L. They spell it out for yeah. you. Yeah. Per one of his videos, is a former winemaker who works from his studio outside of historical medieval center of les Simarquel. Mm. I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it sounds mm-hmm. lovely a seaside town in the south of France. He is also now one of the most watched makers of pronunciation videos in the world, according to YouTube. His videos have gotten more than 50 million so far this year in the United States. Rightly or wrongly, he says, of course, people judge each other by their pronunciation, and Mikel has tapped into a widespread desire to avoid sounding like a fool or a Philistine. Mm. Quote, People are worried about being evaluated as not sufficiently cultured or worldly, says Nicole Holliday, a linguistics professor at Panoma College. If you bungle the pronunciation of something fancy, she said, she said you're kind of exposed yourself as the proletarian. Mm-hmm. Americans in particular are very insecure about French, in part because of its association with sophistication. In that sense... Mikael's accent is an asset. Mikael started learning English at school, uh, in school at age 10. He speaks fluent Spanish, Italian, and, of course, English and French. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. Made his first pronunciation videos in 2019 after years of hearing people stumble over the names of wines. And so he put together these very short videos. They're very they're spare. Super, they're super short. It's like a minute long, literally. Yeah. They're, it's a minute long. And he and 
I the only I mean there are a ton of these pronunciation videos, but I just remember him because of his French, his French accent. accent. Mm-hmm. He intends his videos for both lifelong English speakers and those learning the language. And his YouTube channel recently reached one million subscribers. That's a dependable audience, and I'm sure a good income yeah, for him. Yeah, that's right, a profitable one, mm-hmm. especially in the line of work that we're in. <laughs> You know, you've been sitting across right. from me for more than a right. decade. Right. How many times have I butchered stuff? <laughs> right. I'm just here to help. Thank you. But he's helped me countless times. Yeah. Because, you know, it, English is a pretty comprehensive language. Yes. With okay. A lot of things so I don't if know. you you got a chance a little later on this evening, uh, Julian J U L I E N Mikel M I Q U E L Julian Mikel on YouTube. All right. That's fascinating. Feel better about yourself. All right. After the break, we're going to come back with Chris Martin. Um, How are we to be wise about information and disinformation? And how can we tell the difference, especially in regards to something as complex as the Israel-Gaza conflict? We'll talk about it next with Chris Martin. Stay close. The Ride Home. How do you make sense of something that doesn't make sense? You mean like the, you're talking about the war? Yeah. I mean, we're inundated, of course, now. And this is one of these instances where you, how do you trust your source? Because everyone has a very particular, now look, um, for years, I've talked about this many times. I've been a reader, a religiously reader of the New York Times. They are far left. I, Mm -hmm. I would say they are. And I've seen the drift go further and further and further. So oftentimes... But even though they are owned by a Jewish family, generationally, they are very, uh, what I say, anti-Israel in some ways, now, yes. Well, well, certainly, I have a lot of Jewish friends who would call it anti-Israel. Yeah. So you look at cable news. Or what I mean, about NPR? NPR. I would, think I would put them I would in that well. same category, right? It's hard to get a real sort of sense on what's going on. And it's hard. Yeah, you're right. Chris Martin's back with us. He's a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers, a social media marketing and communications consultant. He writes regularly in his Substack newsletter, Terms of Service. He also has a book called The Same Thing, Substack. Chris, welcome back. How are you doing? Hi. I'm glad to be back. Thanks for having me. I'm certainly no expert on the conflict in Israel, but I am a little bit of an expert on how to navigate a lot of this inundation that we're experiencing on the internet. Right. Okay. So how do you, how do you have a marker, Chris, Mm -hmm. for what, you know, Kath and I sort of have a a sort of sliding gauge on, on how we look at media. Mm -hmm. These people are left, these people are right. And then we take it with a grain of salt with what we're reading or watching. Are you doing the same thing? Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I try to read widely and it helps that I'm, you know, Generally, I'm, I would not call myself a far-right politically person or a far-left politically person. So I, I, even if I read those things, I try to find, okay, what, what details are each of these sides reporting that are the same and yes. try to find some sort of middle ground. I would agree. The, the, the thing is, is um, you know, what I think we have to remember in a situation like with the conflict going on in Israel, especially at the beginning, but it, you know, where, where the inundation was really bad two or three weeks ago, it's gotten maybe a little bit better um, because things aren't happening maybe so fast uh, in terms of, you know, people, Hamas fighters or terrorists were landing on the ground in Israel. We were all like getting this live in a sense in some form or fashion. And so things have slowed down maybe a little bit. However, 
um, I think it's really important that we recognize that um, many of the outlets that we consume uh, on the internet, whether it's individuals or like companies, like organizations, New York Times, Fox News, whatever else, have a dog in this fight, meaning they have an opinion about what's going on, whether it's a person or an entire company. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that we have to recognize that. And secondly, we have to recognize that we crave propaganda as humans. Like we, propaganda is like a bad word, right? Like, oh, the Chinese propaganda or the Russian propaganda. The United States propagandizes as much as anybody. Israel mm-hmm. propagandizes as much as anybody. Hamas and the Palestinian force propagandize as much as anybody. It's, it's, a simple, it's a simple reality of reporting what's happening in a way that makes your side look more favorable. Everybody does this to some degree. And so I think what we have to recognize is we crave that because it makes things easier for us to understand and it scratches that itch of telling us what we want to hear. Um, and so I think what we have to do, there's a really great, I did not come up with this acronym. There's a really great acronym that a guy named Mike Caulfield, who's a digital literacy expert, came up with, when you're trying to navigate really difficult or confusing or contentious issues on the internet, uh, when it's, you know, like who's telling the truth kind of situations. The acronym is SIFT, and here's what it stands for. Stop, investigate the source, find better coverage, and trace claims, quotes, and media to the original context. So stop, investigate, find better coverage, and then trace whatever you're seeing back to the original source. Here's an example. Early on, when this conflict started, there was video of missile strikes being shown. I think it was allegedly of Israel shooting down Hamas missiles or other missiles. And I was like, wow, that's some pretty incredible video. You know, as an observer, I didn't feel anything. I was just like, wow, that's that's an incredible video that somebody captured. And then I watched that video kind of circulate, go semi-viral if you will and eventually it was it was discovered and or or proposed and shown to be true that the video was from a video game like it wasn't even real um and so is the video game is called arma 2 i think and um and so it like video games are so realistic these days that that footage from video games could be proposed to be real and because here's the thing in situations like this even people who don't necessarily have a strong opinion about who's right or wrong or who's the bad guy a lot of folks just like to go viral and sow chaos. And so folks are just going to create fake situations or fake videos or whatever sure. just to get clicks and views and all of that. And so we just need to stop, slow down, investigate the source, to see if we can corroborate what we're looking at and figure out the original context that something was posted in and um, realize that we're not going to solve any of these problems by consuming the media or certainly uh change too many people's minds by sharing one link or sharing another. Right. So the problem is that the speed at which we're looking at coverage, uh, say we're on Twitter. Uh, mm. I'm still calling it Twitter because X is like too diabolical. Everyone is. It's fine. Um, so the speed at which we're seeing news unfold on Twitter uh, is doesn't allow us or certainly we don't have the discipline, most everybody doesn't have the discipline to do the SIFT method, right? SIFT method, I'm totally behind. If I would do it, the problem is that the scrolling element tends to overwhelm it. To, yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not made, Neil Postman used to talk about this with the nightly news. Like he said, paraphrasing him and amusing ourselves to death, he said, are we 
really is the human mind made to consume the matters of the world in 30 minutes yeah, <laughs> or 20, yeah, 20, 22 yeah. minutes, you know, minus it's commercials. Not, right, right. And I think is the human mind created to consume the world in 30 minutes spent scrolling Twitter? The answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've had to check myself on this. Like I stopped on following a lot of news and that kind of thing, not because I don't care, but because I, I think the way to describe it is you can either let the world and the news of the world happen to you and you can experience it kind of unwillingly, kind of like what you described, just like scrolling and you're just seeing all this stuff all the time. Or you can do your best to engage with it on your own terms and mm-hmm. say, I want to I want to read more, hear more about what's going on across the world or with this tragic situation or that. I'm going to you know look up on Google News or look up wherever else, wherever you want to look and seek out that information rather than have it sort of forced upon you because you happen to follow this news source or that right um and so i think if we can if we can manage the relationship with the news ourselves rather than just let it happen to us mm-hmm. we can uh take some steps toward maybe having a bit healthier relationship okay so chris so you, you mentioned uh uh chris uh, neil postman now, now neil postman's that's decades old information now w- would it be and is there someone in this whole morass who would be that guide, someone who would say, this is how you should operate. Uh, to to even, even go a step further, which of course is never going to happen, I mean, the idea of a news organization reporting as fair and balanced, which of course it's not fair and balanced, and in the New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, and everything and else in between. That's, that's no. not true. But why isn't there? Why can there not be an organization that you would say, you know, I am... I can't even say this, that you can implicitly trust that is somehow fair and balanced. I mean, that will just never happen because they themselves are beholden to advertisers and to clicks and to whatnot. I mean, lacking that, why isn't there a digital news literacy course that we can agree on and say, this is the path forward? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I wish that there was a digital literacy course. And it's funny that you say, is there someone like Postman? I mean, when I set out to write the book Terms of Service, my my charge to myself was, what if Neil Postman was alive today and was also a Christian? Write a book in that vein. Mm, and that's, that, that's yeah. what I, I did my best impression. I'm nowhere yeah. near as smart as he is, but that's kind of what I tried to do with Terms of Service. Um, the problem is Terms of Service, didn't. my first book, didn't sell very well because Nobody likes to admit they have a poor that's relationship with social exactly media. Exactly <laughs> so the problem. That's one problem. Yeah. And nobody thinks they have this problem, first of all. Secondly, why is there not a sort of like totally neutral, fair and balanced, just give you the facts news source, if you will? Uh, and you're kind of hinted at this, um, John. It's because you can't make any money doing that. Um, it's the same reason, you know, like we were talking about uh, a book that our publishing house was considering publishing the other day, and we were talking about how. Um, it was regarding politics or, or how we relate to our country, gener- like patriotism and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, we were like, this is going to be a really like well-reasoned and, and like, you know, not cynical, but also not extreme book on how to think about our country as Christians. And we were like, well, I suppose that means it may not sell very well because, because the things that sell super well are the things that are extreme one way or the other uh, and the things that get people riled up. This is why things like Fox News or MSNBC or CNN or whomever you want perform so well financially, generally speaking, more than something that's down the middle is because they rile people up and it gets people passionate. Um, And to just say, here's what's going on in the world, 
Um, that's why the Associated Press is not a billion dollar organization. I mean, you could say the Associated Press is about as close to what you're describing as we could get. But of course, bias is everywhere humans are. So you're never really going to get rid of bias. Right. Um, but but yeah, it's just not very lucrative. Right. So I mean, you know, Chris, in the old days, I would say, yeah, maybe AP was as close to it. But even now I look at it and I go, no, nope, not even close. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there, there right, just right. isn't anything that you we can agree on anymore. Yeah. So is that, have we just devolved as humans? Has, has our exposure to the di- digital world just made us has hardened us to the point where we all have to be accepting the lies or no, I mean, but we have always have to be in our own ideological space. And so if we're not, you know, kind of like what we see has happened to to art, you know, in the art world, it's not art for beauty's sake anymore. Art has to be for a purpose. It has to have an agenda. Are we like that with everything? Has that infected our journalism? But too, aren't Chris? people interested in the truth? Yeah, yeah. I I hope people are interested in the truth. I sometimes am pretty skeptical of whether or not people are interested in the truth. And I think there's this, you know, this sort of authentic individualism ethic that's present in all of us today, but especially culture generally that I'm interested in the truth, but truth is what I consider it. Like my story, my truth, that sort of ethic that just pervades that so culture much. today. I hate my truth. I know, I, hate I know, it. I, I hate know, it but so it's, much. it's a thing. It and, is and a that's thing. Why You're right. People are going to live in the reality they want to create for themselves. And it's sad, but it is unfortunate. Here's the deal. This is where, again, social media is my thing, not philosophy or sociology. But the our algorithms that we spend two and a half hours a day engaging reinforce that. And it's incredibly lucrative to reinforce that. So the world around us, everything from our Amazon recommendations to the ads in our Instagram feed to the YouTube recommended videos we watch, is ta- it basically says to us, what you want matters more than anything in the world. So why wouldn't our news follow suit in that regard? Right. Like that, it, it just makes sense. And so our, our brains are continually being rewired to tell us what's real matters less than what you want. And the, it's not like, I would say the news doing that is kind of downstream from our technology and like the stuff we spend two and a half hours a day engaging with. Everything else is just kind of flowing behind in the wake of that, if you will. I'm into that. We're talking with Chris Martin. He's a creative director at Moody Publishers, author of a couple of books about social media, The Wolf in Their Pockets and Terms of Service. Uh, Chris, uh, what are you working on? Uh, Wolf in the Pockets, is that new? Yeah, Wolf in Their Pockets came out uh, in the spring. That one's Terms of Service is kind of, hey, uh, I need to examine my relationship with social media. What do I do about that? The wolf in their pockets is if you're a parent or like a pastor or a teacher, even you're like, I see social media changing the heart and mind of my child, loved one. How do I lead them to have a healthy relationship with social media? That's what the wolf in their pockets is is all about. So yeah, that one came out in the spring. Excellent. Okay. Um, how's the new baby? She's great. Daisy. Uh, she's just over a month old and she's doing really well. I couldn't love her name any more. <laughs> Super Thank sweet. Yeah, you. very nice. Oh, I love it. Well, thanks for sharing Sift with us. I wrote that of down, course. Chris. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that to heart. Good stuff. Always a yeah. pleasure, Chris. Thanks for stopping by. Yeah, y'all have a good one. Yep. Substack, The Wolf in Their Pockets. Chris Martin. Check it out. And we'll end on this note. The American Ornithological Society 
which is the organization responsible for standardizing English bird names across the Americas. Which we don't discuss a whole lot. On we have not. The American Ornithological Society, first time they've been in appearance, uh, announced <laughs> Will today... Will they be a new sponsor of the program? <laughs> probably not after this. Uh, <laughs> announced today that it would rename, rename all species honoring people. Bird names derived from people, the society said in a statement, can be harmful, exclusive, and detract from, quote, the focus, appreciation, or consideration of the birds themselves. All right. Well, what does that mean? Does does that mean, like, I would judge a bird because I don't like the person it's named after? Yeah. Okay. That means that uh, the Audubon's Shearwater, a bird found off the coast of the southeastern United States, will no longer have a name acknowledging James John Audubon, a famous bird illustrator, I would say the most famous bird illustrator in the world, and a slave owner who adamantly opposed abolition. The Scots Oriole, Oriole, a black and yellow bird inhabiting the Southwest and Mexico, will also receive a new monkey, which will serve to uh, sever ties to the United States Civil War General Wilfred Scott, who oversaw the forced relocation of indigenous people in 1838 that eventually became the Trail of Tears. Now, of course, you understand the horror of those things. Well, but yeah. somehow those men are connected with those birds because right. of what? A close association because of something. The, the, the bird was so close to them as people that they were named, the bird was right. named after them. Okay, so the Trail of Tears was a horror, mm-hmm. a horror. Slavery, a, a horror. horror. But this is birds. Is that dumb? Am I Am I being, what, Am, am I too no, compartmentalized I so. in no, my thinking? No, I don't think so. However, like all things, there is a what they would call an evolution, right? Okay. I'm reading from today's New York Times. The organization's decision is a response to pressure from birders to address the or- reorganization of historical figures with racist or colonial pasts. The renaming process will aim for more descriptive names about the birds' habitats or physical features and is a part of a broader push in science for more welcoming, inclusive environments. Quote, we're really doing this to address some historic wrongs, said Judith Scarl. Okay, but the wrongs weren't in the bird world. I get it. I get it. So I just... carry something with it. My guess is... Are they going to have to rename the Audubon Society? Well, the Audubon Society has been talking about this for a long time. Uh, but apparently there's been a great pushback against that, so that's still up in the air about the Audubon Society. Uh, the American Ornithological Society plans to pilot a renaming program next year, starting with about 10 birds. Eventually the program will expand to address all namesake birds in the United States and Canada, and then move on to the avian species in Central and South America, which is the extent of the society's naming jurisdiction. Um, well, how do you feel about that? I, I guess I feel fine, fine. Uh, if you're going to offend people and hurt people's feelings about birds, and you're going to go back to a more neutral setting, especially more descriptive about the birds, okay, then I got no problem with it. These people are not my relatives. I don't have any connection to them emotionally. So okay, I, but let, it bring it brings me back to the question. How many perfect people 
were there in That's the past. I get it. Believe me, I get it. But we are we, in different people have area. done pe- people have done horrible things. People have all of us have done horrible things. So we're all going to end up being erased at some point or another because. But better to let it go, so as we not. I guess that's right. I guess that's right. But if we're talking birds, right? Welcome to another edition of The Ride Home with John and Kathy, live from the Salem-Pittsburgh studios. And now, here are your hosts, John Hall and Kathy Emmons. Hey, greetings and good afternoon. Thanks for coming along for the 5 o'clock hour of The Ride Home. Happy that you're with us. Kath? Uh, so, you know, still have the Halloween hangover. Uh, and I don't drink alcohol, so it's not right. that kind of hangover. So, you started out as a small party. Right. I was going to have a small party. We were uh, initially going to have five people. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be? We had 30, I think. Mm-hmm. How'd that happen? Uh, it was just, you know... Word of mouth. Yeah, kind of. Hey, the Emmons yeah. are having a party. Yeah. Um, we And we also had, I think, around 60 kids. Oh, did you? Like trick-or-treaters. That's interesting, though. Lex and I talked a little earlier. Our turnout was disappointing. And I think, well, of course, Lexi's was, too. She had eight, right? Yeah, eight. Uh, it's our, our Halloween was from six to eight. Generally, I would say by 10 after seven, we were done. Okay. Mm-hmm. Huh. Not to say there, were, there weren't a lot of kids. Yeah. But that first hour was flush. But after that, it just kind of stopped. Hmm. Well, I felt badly because I ran out of candy. Uh-huh. We had to package cookies and give them out mm-hmm. to the last four trick-or-treaters. Uh, you weren't handing out money. <laughs> yeah. We, Although I did consider going to the change jar. Listen, we had so much candy. There were, <laughs> there were adults driving around the neighborhood, driving, and then they rolled their windows down and go, you got candy? <laughs> Which I thought was pretty, <laughs> there was a lot of moxie there. We declined to contribute. Wait, there are adults driving around uh-huh. and putting their window down and saying, do you have candy? Yeah. Adults are uh-huh. trick-or-treating? Uh, well, after the fact, right? Looking for whatever. Leftovers. Yeah. You got candy? We're like- That's lame. It's big time. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Slowly rolling through the neighborhood. Oh, that's lame. <laughs> Such is life. Hey, okay, we, we've been talking a lot about the Israel-Hamas. Of course, uh, the war is in full rage right now. But uh, this is from CT. Christians give at record levels to fund Israeli relief, mm-hmm. which I believe is very, very mm-hmm. good news. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, I, I think for a long time you go, how best to help? Yeah. Of course, I need to necessarily pray. But you think about relief efforts, whether it's Israeli or Palestinian citizens, regular people, they're being harmed by this. So how do we best protect and love on those Israelis and, of course, the war effort as well? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, I mean, any instance where Christians are giving money yes. is us acting like we should be acting. That's right. So I appreciate that. The International Christian Embassy Jerusalem has received millions in donations since the war broke out, more than any other two-week period in history. Wow, really? Christians United for Israel, which calls itself the largest pro-Israel organization in the U.S., immediately sent a million dollars to fund first responders within days of the October 7th attack, and they continue to fundraise. And the Joshua Fund, founded by Christian author Joel Rosenberg, has collected over $700,000 in donations. Wow. The organization is operating 21 aid distribution centers, delivering pallets of TP, bottled water, and other supplies. And so the list goes 
on and on. Uh, about half of U.S. evangelicals consider support for Israel and the Jewish people to be an important priority in their charitable behavior. This is from CT. For years, giving to nonprofits that work in the Holy Land has been on the rise. Some rank among the biggest Christian charities in the United States. So um, the president and the CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews says that um, his name is uh, Yale Eckstein. He says, we were able to mobilize immediately because of the partnerships we have, and thousands of people are being served because of the work that's being done. I mean, this is important work, isn't it? Yeah. Because government alone can't handle this. You need the necessary nonprofits and the cooperation of Jews and Christians working together. Right. Christian Advocates for Pluralism in the Middle East, Philo's Project, has also regularly visited the kibbutz near Gaza, taking over 11,000 to 12,000 people there, supplies, including food and clothing as oh, well. okay. So, since the attack. Since the attack. Of course, the, the kibbutz... I can't imagine what They were the first ones like. that were attacked. So all these kibbutzes... In were, such an unbelievably barbaric way. Yep. UK-based Christian Aid is funding a mobile health clinic, including a wound specialist and psychological care. The charity is raising funds to cover grants for hundreds of displaced families who fled to southern Gaza, where its partners are already providing mattresses, medicine, and meals. And the Council of Local Evangelical Churches in the Holy Land told the Baptist Standard that the war has affected ministry in the West Bank, home of New Life, a ministry to vulnerable children. They've seen the violence taken a psychological toll on the kids it serves, and also food distribution by RCO Ministries, formerly Ramallah Christian Outreach, has been disrupted by closed roads and travel difficulties. The ministry plans to resume its outreach to Gaza as soon as it can. Uh, the monastery, the money that many of these ministries raise uh, covers costs like basic needs, uh, disaster things like food, housing, hygiene products, toys, clothes, medical care for survivors and evacuees. Many Israelis who have left their homes are living in hotels now emptied of tourists because no, right. one's, no visiting one's visiting the Holy Land. Uh, the list of Israelis' needs right now also includes the likes of uh, portable bomb shelters, bulletproof vests, Armored vehicles, tourniquets, grim reminders that this isn't just another crisis. It is, in actuality, a true war zone. Aid efforts to continue to focus on helping the displaced, but also on bulking up security measures to prepare for possible escalation along the northern border with Lebanon are underway as well. So the call is, is this. If you yourself feel the need and would like to help out, there are many, many yes. reputable uh, organizations that you can find very easily. I, I would suggest you look at this article on Christianity Today. The headline is, Christians give at record levels to fund Israeli relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and do your research because, you know, if you, you – know how it is. Anybody can ask you for something on TV. That's right. And, you know, looks like your reputable organization. So just, you know, go to the Charity Navigator, which is a website where uh, you can find out exactly how any nonprofit spends their cash. Exactly. And so give to one that's going to – Take your money and get it to the right place. Yep. Okay, we're going to take a, a quick break. We're going to step away. In just a few minutes, Frederica Matthews Green will join us. She's an Orthodox Christian. She's going to talk about the very difficult crossroads of Mary. Now, mm-hmm. every time we bring this up, uh, we do ruffle some feathers. But the fact of the matter is, many Christians still pray to Mary. Frederica is going to talk about Mary praying for us and those who would choose to pray for her. The circle sort of goes yeah, backwards. 
We'll talk about that. From my evangelical background, that seems so wacky. Stick around for Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the ride home here on Word FM. Frederica Matthews Green joins us. She's the author of The Jesus Prayer, the ancient desert prayer that tunes the heart to God, and also Welcome to the Orthodox Church, an introduction to Eastern Christianity. Frederica, welcome back. Yes. Hi, John. Hi, Kathy. Good to be back on your show again. Yeah, always happy to have you, Frederica. And the topic you've picked to talk about today, I mean, I can't think... I think it's, I think it's rare that there is a topic that engenders more... Uh, confusion, angst, and maybe even mm. anger or offense between Orthodox, mm-hmm. Roman Catholics, and Evangelicals than the subject of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yes, it's, it's really a shame because you think of how much Jesus loved her. You know, he loved her like like she was his mom, yeah. like we're supposed to love our mom. And and yet so much, as you say, so much chaos and argument about her. Yes. Now, Frederica, you're here today to talk to us about an image of Mary praying. Please tell us about this. Yes, yes. Um, I, and this is where the confusion often is. We, we don't worship Mary. We ask her to pray for us. So this story is about something that happened in the 900s in Constantinople. There was a, um, a man who made it his goal to be a fool for Christ. His name was Andrew. So he was homeless. Um, he, was, he was clairvoyant. He could read people's thoughts. And there was a young man who began to follow him and accompany him. The two of them were in church one night. They were praying all night because a fleet of ships from the enemy was attacking the city. Their approach was imminent, and they knew they were in terrible danger. So Andrew and and his friend and everybody in the town was praying all night there. And at one point, Andrew turned to Epiphanius and said, Do you see what I see? And Epiphanius said, yes, and I am in awe. What they saw was a company of brilliantly lighted people walking into the church, saints from all the ages. They saw St. John the Evangelist, St. John the Forerunner, some of them they could recognize. Right in front was Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was leading them. And she walked all the way, followed by all these saints, to the center of the church, And then she stopped, and she knelt down, and she prayed, prayed for a long time in tears. And then she stood again, and she took the veil off her head and stretched it out in her hands. And at that, she began to rise in the air, and the veil reached and reached and reached from side to side till it covered everybody in the church. And Andrew and Epiphanius said they saw her there for a long time, holding up her veil over the people, and it was shining with flashes of glory. And uh, the barbarian fleet turned back for no known reason. The city was saved. And this event um, on October 1st in 9-11 is celebrated every year in the Orthodox First as the Feast of the Protecting Veil of Mary, of the Theotokos. Hmm. That's a fantastical story. Uh, mm, mm-hmm. Frederica, go into this. I mean, the truth of this story. Yeah, I mean, does, yeah. So does that, does that story inspire you? Does that give, mm-hmm. like, what does, a, what does that story make you think? It, that story 
story makes me think about the communion of the saints, that that these people, uh, St. Paul, St. John the Evangelist, all of them are alive. They're not mm. dead. They're not actually sleeping. They're praying. They're awake and alert, and they are praying. And that's really the, the only thing they're doing. They're worshiping God, praying all the time. And they are praying for us. They're praying for the Christians who are still on earth who are in trouble. They're praying for the non-Christians who need to come to the Lord. And we can ask them to pray for us. We don't get in a conversation with them. We don't try to get them to tell us the future or anything like that. I mean, that would be terrible. Right. So this isn't but, this right. isn't divination or some weird type of communion or communicating with the dead. No, no, it's nothing like that. It's it's like dropping a postcard in a mailbox. It's like you just say, Mary, pray for me. Paul, pray for me. Anyone you love from the scriptures, ask them to pray for you. And, and you can say, this is what I'm facing. This is what I'm afraid of or scared of. But you don't expect to get a reply from them. You just expect them to pray because that's what they're doing all the time. So it's very enhancing to your spiritual life to realize that the communion of the saints is alive and it's around us all the time. And they are our friends. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they they are already able to pray 24 hours a day so we can call on them. Frederica, I have a friend who is Anglican, and she was explaining to me about um, coming up during communion and kneeling at the altar, altar, right? Or what? what railing. It, railing. That's I couldn't think of the word. Yeah. And um, and she said that when she uh, was in seminary, uh, someone had explained to her that it's so helpful when you go up and kneel at the railing that you imagine that the railing goes to your left yeah. and right. And if you can imagine all of the saints of God being at that railing throughout all time, that's beautiful. some to your left, those are the ones who have already lived. And those to your right, those are the ones who have yet to come. Um, and and so that mm. that experience of of the Eucharist is profound and in time, but also beyond time. Yes, yes, also outside of time, and that it includes those who are yet to come is a very beautiful addition to this thought. It's a timeless moment when we receive the body and blood of Christ. Now, Frederica, I wonder about this. When I ask Mary to pray for me, Mary is not alive. So how am I asking the dead to pray? Yes, well, it's, it's, um, it's clear that she is alive, that everyone who has lived in Christ is alive, is alive in paradise, awaiting the resurrection of the body, as we will do once we die. And um, awake and alert and concerned about things on earth, just like Elijah and Moses, who appeared next to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They weren't dead. They weren't sleeping. They were, they were alive. So with everyone in paradise, alive and praying for us, it, they become friends to us. Mm. And that's 
that's how we ask them to join us. I can understand people saying, well, that's not necessary. Um, I was talking to a um, Protestant friend about this, and she said, well, I'm just going to continue to go straight to Jesus. And I said, if that's what you want, I won't pray for you anymore. (laughs) Because it's the same principle. Why do you ask your best friend to pray for you? You can can go direct to Jesus. You don't need anybody else's prayers. (laughs) That's a good point, Frederica. (laughs) Yeah, it It really, you know. I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean. Uh, pushback deserves some pushback. Well, well <laughs> yeah, push back. and and that brings it into context mm-hmm. in a way. I'm that, not going to pray for you anymore, right? In in the way that the average, you know, well, why would you pray to saints? Like that doesn't make any sense. You're not. But it's interesting. Until I, I, I say this so often when we have these conversations. Until I met you, Frederica. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're here, Frederica. That's like my, that's like my pre-Frederica life and my post-Frederica life. But before I knew you, I always thought that you were praying to the saints. I didn't realize that you were – it was. it's like asking a friend to pray for you. So a difference between two yeah. and four. It, and it's the difference between pray and ask. Yeah. Because we, we say, well, we're praying to the saints, but I sent a text to my friend, and then I sent a phone call to one friend, and then I spoke to somebody else at church. It's just different mediums of of communication. And probably we shouldn't say pray to the saints, because you think that means worship. All we mean is we ask the saints. Yes. We ask the saints to pray for us. That's all there is to it. Mm-hmm. Frederica, could you go a little deeper and, and maybe the, show the delineation or tell me about the delineation between the saints in heaven and the saints among us? Because the saints are mm-hmm. here as well, yes? Yes, yes, of course they are. The The saints are surrounding us. Um, oh, how beautiful it would be, wouldn't it, if each of them lit up with gold a little bit and we could spot them in a crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, everywhere we go, there are our brothers and sisters in Christ in every church, in every denomination, just those who love the Lord. And loving the Lord Jesus goes a long way with the Father. It truly does. And, you know, in these especially, I'm sure all times are like this, but it does feel as though these times are especially dark. And so Mm -hmm. I need to be reminded of the saints among us that there is goodness overflowing and the darkness will not cover that. Will will not cover that. Will not extinguish it. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Oh, That's so important. And we can we can rely on that. And I agree with you. It does seem like things are getting weirder and more dark and dire. And we need each other more than ever. So there may be things we disagree about how to interpret this verse in the Bible or that verse. But the thing that binds us together is that we love the Lord Jesus. We want to be true to him. We want to serve him. That's the most important thing. Frederica Matthews Green is with us. She's the author of Welcome to the Orthodox Church, an Introduction to Eastern Christianity. Frederica, we only have a couple minutes left and we need to stick to that time. But I want to ask you about that book, uh, Welcome to the Orthodox Church, because, um, of course, I have a copy of it. I got it out um, uh, maybe two years ago, the night before I went to an Orthodox Church the first time. And so I could cram. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's good to cram. Frederick, it's just like my, all, all my old uh, practices from college came back to me. Uh, no, I was, I just I figured my husband and I and my daughters needed to a primer yeah. on what 
you know, about to experience. Exactly. And it was so helpful (laughs) to us uh, so that we went into the church. We kind of knew what was going on um, and what to expect. The people were so lovely to us. And we had such a wonderful, wonderful morning together. Um, But that seriously reading that book was really helpful. Um, So can you just talk about the book a little bit and how that would, you know, provide an assistance for somebody like me who's never been to an Orthodox church before? I always say I, I like to write the books that I wish I could have read. Yeah, before, right. <laughs> the book, if, if I became Orthodox, it would have really helped me to have this book. Um, and so I do it a little bit differently. I, I take you to an imaginary church, and I, I called it St. Felicity after my particular friend, Saint. And we go in every chapter. We go and we look at something. First, we walk around the empty church so I can acquaint you with everything that's there. Then we go to a couple of services, and a Vesper service, a divine liturgy, Eucharist. And then we start going to smaller things, like let's go to a house blessing at someone's home. Let's go to a baptism. I was hoping that it would be a book that would be useful for people well, like you, that you're just not familiar with it. And if you could read through step by step what that service is like, and I had fun writing fiction and making up characters to, to people this book, I was hoping it would be useful. You know, you, you could feel like you'd been there in a way, so it wouldn't be that much of a, a shock and surprise when you got there. Outstanding. Kathy's talking about St. Nicholas Orthodox Church in McKees Rocks, our good friend, Father Tom Soroka, is the pastor there. And uh, Frederica, yes, I mean, as you said before, I mean, the the positives, right, the the things that unify us, uh, those are much more important to us than the things that uh, divide us as believers in Jesus Christ. That is the first and foremost, is it not? That is so true, and uh, I think the truth of that will become more and more clear. We really are going to need each other, and it will be important to put any disagreements to the side. Amen to that. Frederica, it's always a great pleasure. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on. It's Frederica Matthews-Green. She is the author of The Jesus Prayer and the aforementioned Welcome to the Orthodox Church. sense. Does what make sense? Eggplant. Eggplant. It looks so nice from the outside. It's just such a beautiful color. It looks so striking. And I want you to know that I want to like it because I, I like most food. I really, really want to. The texture is so disgusting to me. And I just, I ask you, does does eggplant make sense? In every conceivable (gasps) way, it makes sense. What? One of the great joys of our childhood dinner table was my mother's fried eggplant, which were these thin slices of eggplant dipped in egg and flour and then lightly fried in a cast iron skillet. Serve piping hot. I would love that. I, I've asked my wife to recreate that. It's never the, never quite. Right. My wife's a wonderful cook. And, might I add, eggplant parmesan. It's delicious. Highly recommended. Eggplant makes perfect sense. Well, I, uh, 
I can't believe we're we're diverging so strongly. We are. I mean, have you ever had fried eggplant? I don't think I've ever had fried eggplant. Thin slices. No, I've had fried zucchini. Mm. Never had fried eggplant. You love fried eggplant. How do you know? I just know. Is the texture it's is, delicious? It's not so delicious. Crispy. Okay. Eggplant parm. You're not doing that. I just can't get past the texture no, of it. It's so just... good. You go to a good. You go to Rico's. Yeah. Have some eggplant parm. Our, okay. I mean, I'm going to say to me right now it doesn't make sense, but I told you I want to like it. Okay. Well, I'm telling so you. So I'm going to I'm I'm going to maintain an open attitude. All right. Does this make sense? Mm-hmm. Formerly known as. What is that? Oh, <laughs> like the artist formerly known as, or, or X formerly, formerly known, known as, as Twitter. Twitter. Right. <laughs> How many times do I have to read that? Or the artist formerly known as Prince. Right. Formerly known as. Just say it. Just say the thing, and in my mind, I'll catch up. Right. You don't have to tell me that it's formerly known. Caitlin, formerly known as Bruce. Whatever. Why is why is that a thing? What. It doesn't make any sense. I've done, I've, if I've read that once, I've, no exaggeration, I'm sure I've read it a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Formerly known as. Does that just make you angry? It just, I know it already. So you're, you're telling me formally, so you're already telling me the thing twice. <laughs> just let me know it and I'll, I'll catch up. We all catch up eventually. It makes no sense to me to hear formerly known. Does it make sense to yeah. you? Yeah. Well, it doesn't make sense. Pr- Prince made it up. I think he's the one who started it. Formerly known as? Yeah. Mm. The artist, because he started with the symbol and it was the artist formerly known as Prince, right? right? doesn't make any Does, sense. Does, really not. So I've noticed something in my life that I don't like. You About you personally? Yes. This is a public confession. It's a public confession to you and however many thousands of people are listening to me now. Bless me, Father, for I have seen <laughs> Exactly. It has been. Probably three years since I've really enjoyed reading. This is a difficult subject because I have a problem with this as well. I will join you in your confession. <laughs> Close the door. Three years since you've enjoyed the, the, the pleasure of reading has somehow slipped from you. Yes. I hate to hear this. I know. Okay. So I've noticed it. It's been creeping up. Uh, but I haven't been able to put words to it until I read an article online just this morning. Okay, wait, no, wait. Let me just clarify this. Is the is it the act of reading? Now, if you listen to an audio book, is that different from reading itself? Because many people would say, oh, an audio book is still reading. Yes, an audio book is still reading. I, let's see, I, I, I'm good with audio books. Okay. But then it's the physical act of reading? Yes. The physical act of sitting in a chair. Yeah. Having a cup of tea. Yep. Opening up a book and going, hmm. Yes. And an hour later, you come back up and go, boy, that was wonderful. What a story. Yes. Oh, go on. Well, I think in our case, it's multifaceted. And it probably is for anybody who has to read for a living. You know, we read books because it's our job and we have to. And so when you're not working, you necessarily want to do the thing that's different from working. So I get that. But I think there's something else that has figured into this, which is not going to be a surprise to you and probably won't be a surprise to anybody else. But let me tell you in somebody else's words. 
The world's on fire, she writes. We scroll and scroll and scroll past the bombings and the shootings and the yelling and the blaming and not to mention the climate and even the economy, too. Everything's so bad and we're all depressed. Wake up, scroll. Lay down, scroll. The nightmare rectangle glowing misery in our faces every day and every night. So a few months ago, she writes, I did a little search. Wall-mounted phone holder. She says, as I've gotten older, my sleep schedules have changed and I wake up naturally around 6 a.m. almost every day. I wake up, check my phone and then lose hours in an endless downward spiral of social media, emails, sports recaps and more. I started to take inventory of the hours I was losing. It was bad. I was worried I was wasting my life with stuff I could not control and could do nothing about. I needed a change. So I ordered a cheap stick-on mount and attached it to the hallway wall outside my bedroom. I decided I would self-impose a no-phone-in-the-bedroom policy. That's very wise. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So do you agree with her with the wake-up scroll? Yes. Lay-down scroll? I go through periods of that where I voluntarily fall into that hole. And as destructive as I know that it is to my heart, to my mind, to my soul, I continue to do so until I'm unable to do so because of my mental health condition. Yes. And then you get a grip on yourself. Yes. And then I stop for an extended period of time and then go, okay, now here, here's a quick story. My family was in town over the weekend. One of my sisters was staying with me. She left Monday morning with my brother. They were driving maybe 15 minutes when I discovered her phone sitting on a coffee Uh-oh. table. And I texted my brother immediately and said, hey, Jackie forgot her phone. She called me and said... Leave it. I need the break. Mail it to me. You're kidding me. (laughs) So it'll arrive maybe today, maybe tomorrow. But she recognized it as well. I need a break. But I've thought about her phoneless many multiple times in those few days, wondering how she's doing imagining myself in her position. Right. I would have turned around. Exactly. I couldn't believe it. I said, I'll go meet you. They were only gone 15 minutes. I could have jumped in the car. They could have stopped exactly where they were. Believe me, I would have said that. Oh, I'm going back. Because if I'm away from my phone for literally 60 seconds, or if I think it's lost, I fall into a panic. That's so sick. Listen to this. This is Emily Gorchensky. She says that she put it outside her the door to the bedroom, and she said it was good because if somebody calls, she could still hear it. Mm-hmm. And if when it went off as her alarm in the morning, she actually had to get out of bed. Right. So it was it actually ended up being good for her. But she goes back and she starts thinking about how the phone has changed her life in general. And she talks about her story of the different jobs she's had and how she loved always loved reading, like you and I both grew up reading, loved, loved reading, oh my gosh. everything so great. Our about kids. It. She said she always had one fiction book going and one nonfiction going at every time. Yep. She started the Modern Library Project, which mm. is a big thing online. So she was a 
you know. Yeah, invested. She was really invested. She started working at Barnes & Noble, and she ended up in a managerial capacity where she was actually looking at books as product. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't working at the counter anymore. Mm -hmm. She wasn't recommending books. But all of a sudden, it was was ISBNs that needed to go on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Stuff needed to be scanned and counted. And she said, I stopped reading because I was traumatized with all of the book stuff, and I lost my love. And I never really got it back. Mm -hmm. Then she says, I have to say there were other factors, too. I was focusing on not getting back to school. I also got into World of Warcraft, (laughs) perhaps a little too much. But gosh, I was good at it, she says. Reading took a backseat in my life, and it stayed there for almost two decades. Mm -hmm. It pained me to think about this loss. Reading brought me so much joy throughout my life. I used to live at our local library. Why couldn't I get it back? But this year, she said, I found the answer. Put away the stupid phone. So she goes on to say, my morning routine doesn't simply involve not scrolling. It involves reclaiming that time to bring a sense of joy, curiosity and comfort to my life. I get up and I read. I carry a book with me on the train heading to the office. I read before bed. I'm devouring books again. It feels so good. I feel like I've found a lost part of my life and I feel so much more intellectually stimulated because books have nuance. They offer wisdom. Social media, it offers shouting and the flattening of complex issues in patronizing and filthy ways. Amen. She said, I found something else in this journey. The world isn't nearly as on fire as we think. Emily Gorchensky says, I don't mean to minimize the suffering happening in the world with the horrific wars going on, with civil rights under threat, with everything barreling ever faster toward our present day. But I found that there's way more good people than bad, way more people willing to help than hurt. Some things are really scary, but there's way more people out there willing to guide us through the darkness than we think. The cynic in me wants to say that the powers that be want us to be endlessly doom scrolling and losing hope and snuffing out optimism. We shouldn't give them what they want. There's a lot of beauty in the world still within our grasp, and we're better when we're poets, when we're learners and listeners, when we're builders and not breakers. When I read, I learn that there's no new problems in the world we're living in. When I take ownership over my own joy, I found that joy is always waiting for us if we can choose to make it and find it. And I'm glad I finally figured it out. Wow. Amen to that. Didn't that, doesn't that. That makes perfect sense. We are better when we're poets because the poet in all of us. Imagine the unimaginable, Mm. peel back the darkness and see the beauty overwhelm us. And to be a hamster on the wheel of social media is to delve in the darkness endlessly and to look at the world through ugly and cynical eyes. And it's killing all of our souls and it frightens us. It overwhelms us. It makes us less human, less Mm. compassionate, less empathetic. We need to stop. Remember the olden days of PSAs and the PSAs were always about something in some hopeful way as a gentle nudge, a reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This could happen. You could do this. A mind is a terrible thing to waste. All those, they were easily mockable, but they were just this 
a little kiss yeah. of wisdom. Yeah. We forget, and more than anything, we've poisoned ourselves. We are eating voluntarily rat poison. We are giving it to our kids, and we are allowing this to just crush our souls. The beauty has slipped away, and everyone is ugly. Everyone is a suspect. Everyone is against us. And that's our fault. Everybody's on the wrong side. Yep. Right? And my side is pure and... We're the virtuous ones, and whatever whoever's on the other side, they're horrible and bankrupt and hate-filled and dark and everything. But and- there should be a difference if we believe in Jesus, truly believe in Jesus, and pray and give ourselves over to that, then we should lead that charge. Yeah, and it I doesn't know. necessarily have to be a Jesus-centric message in your face. It just has to be the actions of the words. That come through the the Gospels. Right. But you have to take the time to read the words or they're not going to enter into your mind. Which comes back again to to reading. reading. (laughs) Put away the stupid phone. Okay. I've got to make a change. It's November 1st. Mm -hmm. I've got to make a change. What are you going to do? I don't know. How do you do this? I don't know. Well. So there's got to be online guides. Well, read online, social media. Well, someone will tell you what to do. I liked her idea of the phone outside the. I don't really read my phone that much with one eye. (laughs) I got one eye going. That's so sick. So sick. I know. But my problem is at night after dinner. Yeah, I mean, I'm watching. Okay, did you watch baseball last night? No, because of Halloween. Oh right. Okay, baseball last night quickly devolved into a ten nothing debacle. Yeah. I'm pulling out my phone. Oh, right. Sure. I look over. My kid's got his phone out. Mm-hmm. My wife's got her phone out. We're supposed to be watching a baseball game. We're all looking at our phones. Until finally I said, I'm going to bed. I mean, it's right. an easy diversion. It is an easy diversion. A Too Coke easy. and a smile. Too a easy. phone and a Too fill easy. in the blank. What about going back to the thing you guys did, your family, Wednesdays were screen-free. Remember we that? We screen-free days. I think maybe, maybe... My husband and I should reinstitute. Screen-free days. What do you think? I, I'm all for it. Because we did it for, remember, it was you a did Lenten it for practice. Years. You did it for years. Yeah. And you, you didn't watch TV for all of Lent last year. Mm-hmm. It was, it, yeah. Or was that two years ago? It was last year. Okay. You just give it away as a, as a means of worship. Maybe that's where it starts. It's got to start somewhere. It's got to start somewhere. So whether it's putting the phone outside the door like Emily Gordchensky did, or it's, I don't know, leaving it outside at night, or I don't know what you do, but I've got to make a change. I love reading. It's my favorite thing in the world. And I just, I need to, I need to find my way back to it. I need to. The phone. I need to find my way back to it. It's an ugly, hairy monster that eats us alive. All right, we need to take a break. When we come back, this day in history, the Sistine Chapel opened. We'll talk about it next. On this date in history, November 1st, 1512, for the first time ever, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel first opens to the public. All Saints Day. Pope Julius II celebrated a mass in the Sistine Chapel in Vatican City for the first time in at least four years. And those who attended were the first people to see one of the most celebrated works of art, the magnificent frescoes painted by Michelangelo on the Ceilings Chapel. 
Asked to paint the Twelve Apostles, Michelangelo undertook a more ambitious project that depicted nine stories from Genesis, including the famous rendition of the creation of Adam, several Old Testament prophets, and many decorative figures. For four years on his back, Michelangelo labored, lying in a small cramped space between a high scaffold and the looming ceiling, paint splattering his face. The work took a physical toll. He complained afterward that the work had aged him so much that friends could not, would not recognize him. Adding to his travail was the fact that he and Pope Julius argued often, the Pope driving him to finish quickly and the artist insisting on realizing his vision. Finally, under the threat of being thrown from his scaffold if he did not finish, Michelangelo completed his task and ordered the scaffold taken down. The earliest... So wait, he was threatened if he didn't finish? He yes. was going to be thrown off? Delay after delay after delay. Huh. There's very famous letters between the two, arguments, recriminations, Pope Julius and Michelangelo. He expected, Mike, you know, the Pope, this will be done quickly, within a year. But four years dragged on. Now, here's the thing. At that first mask, mass, the earliest witnesses marveled at the ceiling as much as people do today. George Vasari, who was an artist and biographer of artists, wrote nearly 40 years after that day, quote, When the work was thrown open, the whole world could be heard running up to see it, and indeed, it was as such to make everyone astonished at the sight and dumb at what they were seeing. Wow. More than 20 years later, Pope Paul III summoned Michelangelo to paint another fresco behind the chapel's altar. That work, The Last Judgment, is another masterpiece. Okay, so the ceiling was done. For, I'm looking at a picture as you're talking mm-hmm. at, uh, online. So the ceiling was done first. Yes. And then the walls were done later. 20 years after 20 the years later. Yes. Both the ceiling and The Last Judgment were restored in the 1980s and the 1990s to reveal far, reveal far more brilliant colors than had been evident after centuries of dirt and smoke. Though some have criticized the techniques used in this restoration, the magnificent magnificence of Michelangelo's vision and execution has never once been doubted. Mm. Never seen it? Certainly it's on my bucket list. Me too. Lex, you've never seen it either, is that right? That is correct. Oh, man. Which I mean, I'm just... I'm looking at the pictures uh, that I'm finding online, and it's it's just it's kind of hard to get a picture of this. I guess the size is what I'm kind of struggling with. Let me just say this: my wife has a has a, a business, and when she first opened her store, I got up on the ceiling and painted the ceiling gold. Oh yeah, solid gold. Yes. Okay. There was paint all over my face, and that was just me. <laughs> Using a brush and a roller. Right. And I, there was no technique involved. I was just slathering it on. Now, can you imagine the masterpiece of Michelangelo on his back creating this with paint falling it's, on him continuously? I can't, it is so intricate. There's, like, I'm just looking at an image here of the ceiling itself. I, I, can't, get, I, I can't get over how this could be producible. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Well, what it is is genius. Michelangelo, on this date, many, many centuries ago, the glory and the beauty of the recreation of the biblical story, and then the Last Supper. Hey, thanks for being with us. That's today's show. And, uh, this is The Ride Home. Say your prayers. God willing, we'll see you tomorrow.
Ride Home with John and Kathy, a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.